0: Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. Please note, this podcast is a little racy in spots. If you have a delicate constitution and choose to continue listening, good for you. Hello, I'm Mark Limquist. I'm a novelist and an attorney, and unlike most novelists slash attorneys, I was a full-time writer before I became an attorney. So other attorneys think I'm crazy, but uh, I love both jobs. The King of Methlehem is my fourth novel, and it's about addiction, ambition, obsession, and compulsive behavior. I'll be starting here with Chapter 2, wherein we meet Howard Schultz, the self-proclaimed King of Methlehem. Chapter 2, The Last Tycoon With the total focus of a freak, Howard methodically pops Sudafed pills from blister packages into a blender, his filthy fingers trembling with anticipation like a poker player with the winning hand. His eyes are red, pupils dilated, skin pale, blonde hair long and stringy and dirty. Piling up behind him on the floor of the kitchen area of the double-wide trailer are dozens of crumpled blister packs. In the corner sits Amber, a skinny tweaker transfixed in front of a television. She is doing exactly what Howard told her to do, staring at a black-and-white image of an empty rural road looking for signs of trouble in the dim light of dusk. Howard, who prides himself on superior security precautions, wired the television to a camera he set up on a post at the end of the dirt and gravel driveway. Amber's four-year-old girl sits nearby on the floor in a purple jumper, eating potato chips and playing with the bag, mesmerized by the crinkling sound. She occasionally glances up at the television or the adults. Mom, shh. Rain patters lightly on the aluminum roof. Howard cooks regularly at Amber's trailer, which is parked on the property of a couple in their 70s who allow Amber to keep her trailer on the three-acre rural lot because they know her mother, who works as a waitress at a sizzler in Puyallup. The couple is clueless, oblivious to the occasional chemical odors and the poisonous meth waste Howard has been dumping onto their land. As soon as Howard pops the last of the blister packs, he turns the three-speed blender on high. The pills disintegrate into powder, and the blender pitcher fills with a cloud of white dust. He feels a rush as the process begins. Two mason jars with coffee filters set in the mouths are ready on the kitchen counter. He pours the powder in the filters, then adds heat, America's number one selling gas line antifreeze, through the powder. This filters out the binder from the pseudo-pills. He pours the pasty mass from the mason jars into a 12-inch frying pan set on simmer, which evaporates the methanol and leaves purified pseudopowder in the pan. How's it going, Amber asks. Shut up, he says. Watch the monitor. When Howard first started cooking a few years ago, he burned out a friend's trailer, and then a shed, and then a motel room, and then his girlfriend's apartment. He subsequently refined his technique. He uses the so-called Nazi method of production because it is the easiest and quickest. Extraction, reaction, and gassing, that's all there is to it, three stages. Contrary to Tweaker lore, the modern Nazi technique was not developed by Nazis or even used in the Third Reich. Though the Nazis did feed their World War II troops uppers that included methamphetamine, as did the Japanese and the Allies, the labs of that era were designed for mass production and employed a process far more complicated than the one practiced in mobile homes across contemporary America. The currently popular Nazi method was developed in the 1980s by a chemistry student at a Midwest university who discovered the Birch reduction method could be used to reduce pseudoephedrine to methamphetamine. Presto, meth making for dummies. This ambitious student wrote the recipe on a sheet of notebook paper, which was copied repeatedly and passed around like a rumor. Because the original paper happened to have Nazi swastika doodling in the margins, the technique became known as the Nazi method. The first Nazi lab was busted in California in 1988. Seven years later, local police found the first Nazi meth lab site in Pierce County, Washington, though they did not initially realize they had stumbled onto a trend. The cook reportedly taught countless other locals his process, and it spread with amazing rapidity because it was simple, and all the ingredients were legal and easily available. Though pseudoephedrine is becoming increasingly difficult to obtain in volume, Howard believes the Nazi method produces the best product, After he has completed the first stage, the extraction of pseudo from the pseudoephedrine, he straps on latex gloves and a white disposable dust mask over his mouth and nose. He is ready for the reaction stage. Next to the oatmeal on a kitchen shelf is a jar with lithium strips stored in kerosene, which Amber helped extract from EverReady batteries earlier today. Howard, like most tweakers, prefers EverReady because of the Energizer bunny ads, which he and other tweakers believe to be an inside meth joke. He adds the lithium into the frying pan, then opens the propane tank and pumps anhydrous ammonia over the pseudo and the lithium. Vapors rise toward his unprotected eyes. He stirs with a spatula, turning the sludge blue and gray. To expedite the evaporation of the ammonia, he heats the pan up a touch further, adding water to quench the reaction. Mommy, what's that smell? Shut up. It's not nice to say shut up. Shut up. Continuing to add water, Howard stirs until the concoction turns cloudy white. According to tweaker lore, a penny should be added at this stage, but Howard researched this on the internet and could not find any justification in chemistry for this, so he assumes it is like throwing a coin into a fountain, superstitious and futile. Into a mason jar, Howard pours the paste from the frying pan. Next, he adds toluene. Ether is cleaner and more efficient, but Howard passed out the only time he used ether, and he woke up with a hangover and a burned hand. He pulls the jar close to his face and stares as a bilayered liquid forms, molecules of meth. He only has one stage to go and he is shaking. He sets down the jar and picks up a turkey baster and begins sucking up the top layer and squirting it into another mason jar. This is methamphetamine oil, but not yet methamphetamine hydrochloride, the real stuff that makes you get naked and climb the tree. You stay, he says to Amber, lowering his mask and passing her a walkie-talkie that is the companion to the one on his hip. Cook safe, Howard, she says. Shut up, he says. Don't call me H-O-W-A-R-D in front of the K-I-fucking-D. Who's she gonna T-E-L? Why must I live my life surrounded by morons, Howard mutters, then picks up the jar containing the siphon-off oil and carries it outside toward the ramshackle wooden tool shed, which glows blue from the Coleman lamp he left on earlier. He walks quickly through the dark, hunched over to shield the mouth of the jar from the rain. Howard has 13 aliases, all backed up by Washington State driver's licenses. Howard Schultz is his current and favorite identity. He paid one of his runners two grams for the date of birth, address, and social security number of the Starbucks coffee mogul. He sometimes worries that he has stuck with this moniker too long. He enjoys being well-known. He craves the underground fame. He's proud of his place in tweaker lore, but he also recognizes the hazards of being the top cook in Pierce County, or as Howard likes to call the county that leads the western United States in methamphetamine production, Methlehem County. If you want to make movies, you go to Hollywood. If you want to play poker professionally, you go to Las Vegas. And if you want to be the meth king, you go to Pierce County, Washington, Howard is fond of proclaiming. He grew up in Woodenville, a town north of Seattle, but after his first day in prison, a short one for burglary, he was released to a halfway house in Tacoma, which proved to be an excellent networking opportunity. He quickly befriended addicts and cooks from around the county and recognized the high-growth market for methamphetamine. Entering the shed, he sets the meth oil down on top of a broken freezer that serves as a storage container. Stocked alongside the tools on rickety shelves is muriatic acid, aluminum foil, a Dr. Pepper bottle, rubber tubing, and gaffer's tape, everything he needs to create an HCL generator. Under the spooky glow of the lamp hanging from the low roof, He mixes muriatic acid and balls of aluminum foil in the Dr. Pepper bottle. Usually he uses rock salt and drain opener, which makes for a cleaner, whiter final product, but Amber used up the drain opener on, of all things, a clogged drain, so Howard must improvise. He pokes a tube into the plastic bottle, wraps gaffer's tape around the opening, and the gas generated by the acid and foil, hydrogen chloride, bubbles through the hose and into the methamphetamine oil. Time to snow, he whispers, kneeling ceremoniously. Sparkles form in the haze as the methamphetamine crystals begin forming, white and dirty beige, clouding the mason jar like a snowstorm. Because the muriatic acid dirties up the product with tan patches, he will have to clean it with acetone before putting it on the market. Ice, crank, speed, zoom, and all means money. Howard gets high just watching this, the tingle spiking through his body. He is reminded of snow globes he shook incessantly, as an ADHD child. Enraptured, he does not hear the walkie-talkie at the first crackle. Howard, Amber, repeats. He is about to tell her not to call him, not to call him at all unless it is an absolute emergency, when the walkie-talkie crackles yet again. Howard, she says, I think cops are outside. Chapter 3, Reality TV. Headlights shine into the streaky drizzle and darkness as they bounce up the driveway, and then Wyatt clicks on the high beams, and there's the trailer, an old silver double-wide with a blue tarp hanging off one end. Trailer, blue tarp, looks like a meth lab. Leaving Marvin locked in the back seat, engine running, Wyatt steps out and walks up to the front door. His senses are attuned to his surroundings as the drizzle falls quietly. He can hear scurrying inside, the mice-like noises he usually hears when tweakers are home. Hello, Amber says, opening the front door about six inches, just enough so the child can look out past Amber's skinny thighs. Immediately, Wyatt can smell the ammonia. Hello, ma'am, I'm Detective Wyatt James. He smiles amiably as he opens his blue blazer, enough to display his badge and gun. Is anyone else inside? Just my child, Amber says, switching unconsciously into a pathetic whine. You mind if I come in out of the rain and talk to you, he says? You have the right to say no, he adds, but I'd like to come in if I could. Police officers must, under the law, inform residents they can refuse them entry, but experienced criminals already know this, so it is only the amateurs who allow police inside without a warrant. I'd like to talk to you about someone in particular, Wyatt says, casually, if you don't mind. Amber has been in jail before and does not want to return, and in her experience, pissing off police officers often leads to a trip downtown, while giving information can lead to a free pass. She lets him in. Thanks, he says. From his inside pocket, he pulls out a Ferrier warnings form, which reiterates that Amber has the right to refuse him entry, limit his search, or revoke her consent at any time, and he has her sign the sheet acknowledging these rights. As he steps inside, blister packs crush under his shoes. He scans the filthy interior, and amid the sundry trash, he picks out the blender, the coffee filters, the propane tank, mason jars, porn magazines, and a black syndrical object that could be either a butt plug or a chew toy. And this is after she had time to clean up. How long ago did he leave, Wyatt asks. Who? Howard? Howard? Amber fumbles long enough for Wyatt to know that Marvin gave them good intel, albeit too late. Yes, he says, Howard. Howard, she repeats again, jittering on the downslide. Howard Schultz, he says impatiently, eyes watering from the ammonia remnants. The cook. He puts his palm over the frying pan with white crust, still warm. Where did he go? He left. Yes, we've established that. Where did he go? I don't know. Amber's child is on the floor, watching the road and driveway on the television monitor. Wyatt studies the screen for a moment, realizes that his approach was observed. "'Let's get out of here,' he says when his throat starts to itch. "'Your child, too.' Wyatt herds him outside. A cat scampers out with them, disappearing quickly. Between the trailer and his car, Wyatt steps in front of Amber and her child so that he is backlit, partially blocking out the glare of the headlamps. Mist has replaced the drizzle. "'So what's your name?' he asks. "'Amber.' "'Of course. Last name?' After a long pause, she says, "'Johnson.' Wyatt assumes this is a lie, but he's not inclined to bother with calling her on it yet. Were you helping him cook? Who? Or did he do all the cooking and promise you some product in exchange? That. What? He promised me some. Always works. Give them two choices and they will pick what they think is the lesser crime. So you let him use your place to cook meth? Yeah. Okay. So where did he go? I don't know. You don't know if you're going to tell me? I don't know. Amber looks confused. So... Wyatt asks. How much do you know about him? Nothing. I just met him today at this party at this like apartment, more like a motel. She's so obviously lying, so obviously tweaking, so obviously useless, Wyatt cuts her off by holding up his hand like a traffic cop. Sometimes he just cannot take. Another damn lie. Stop. No, no, I swear. Just stop. Wyatt looks down at the child standing behind Amber's legs. His own eyes are still watering, but she stares back at him with clear pupils, apparently immune to the ammonia. He expects meth will show up in her urine test from secondhand smoke and dermal exposure. Have you had dinner, he asks the child, bending down, hands on knees. She shakes her head. You hungry? She nods. There's a Denny's down the road. Have you been there? She nods, almost smiles. We're going to meet a nice woman from the government there, he says, and you can get something to eat, okay? The child nods agreeably either uncomprehending or unfazed. Flipping open his cell phone, Wyatt rings the on-duty supervisor and gives him a situation update and asks for child protective services in the meth lab team. You're calling in CPS, Amber says, when he's finished with the call. Why? Because you're going downtown. He reads Amber her Miranda rights by memory, and the child mouths along, as though to a nursery rhyme she has heard many times before. Tell Grandma I need bail money, Amber says. Turn around. Wyatt clicks on the cuffs. If you decide you want to talk about Howard, let me know. He turns around by her shoulders and slides his card in the front of her jeans. I'm Detective Wyatt James. Your public defender will know who I am. Chapter 4. Brandy, you're a fine girl. I am, I am Superman, and I know what's happening. This snippet of a song lyric plays over and over in Howard's head as he runs for what seems like miles, tromping in his black cowboy boots, through the woods, across grassy fields, over wooden fences, until he arrives at an intersection where he stops to finally catch his ragged breath. He sounds like Darth Vader. To the outside eye, Howard looks depleted and decrepit, wheezing like a man dying from the plague. But inside he feels dynamic and destined for greatness, ruling the world like a man holding the hammer of the gods. As dopamine surges through his brain cells, he is proud that he is zooming on his own homemade fuel, euphoric that he is wildly free, confident that he can outsmart the cops every time, and these sensations flood together in a kaleidoscope of sweaty, teeth-grinding, finger-twitching, head-bobbing, crazy ecstasy. I am, I am Superman. Above him, a nearly full moon emerges between dark clouds. He steps into the shadows behind the stop sign, clumsily sits in the tall and wet grass, The closest streetlight is 100 yards away and there are no cars coming. He pulls out a cell phone, calls a taxi service. Despite all his licenses, Howard does not drive. He does not own anything that can be traced back to him. The cell phone is registered to Ted Nugent with a P.O. box in University Place. When the wireless company eventually shuts down his service for lack of payment, as they invariably do, he will get another phone with one of his other identities. He collects SSI. Social Security insurance payments because he is, quote, disabled, unquote, and, quote, unable to maintain employment, unquote, after his stroke resembling collapse in the county jail that followed a week-long meth binge. The disability payments are enough for him to live on even when he is not supplementing his income with meth sales. He relies on the kindness of tweakers for shelter, and his only expenses are for manufacturing supplies, cool cigarettes, taxis, alcohol, and fast food. I am, I am Superman. This song just keeps playing in his brain, and he does not know it as an REM song, and if he did, he would be amused by the band's name. When the cab approaches, Howard stands up and waves it down, trying to appear normal, but he is grinning and fidgeting like a fiend. Still, the cabby stops. Howard gives directions to Brandy's house on the outskirts of Eatonville. Amber was fun, but Howard was tired of her squalid little trailer and mouthy four-year-old child. Bag hoe is his phrase for addicts like Amber, women who will have sex for whatever meth residue is left at the bottom of a baggie. Brandy actually owns a house, not a trailer. She inherited from her parents when they died. Though she used to share it with her white supremacist boyfriend, word on the street is that he went to prison for domestic violence. Howard stayed with Brandy for a few weeks before she hooked up with the wife beater, and he expects her doors always open for him. Though he thinks she has sad eyes, which he calls cow eyes, Brandy can be attractive sometimes. Better yet, she has a daughter she saddled with the name Porsche, who wore hip huggers and chokers at 11 and must be 12 by now. I am, I am Superman, and I can do anything. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, please visit www.kqed.org writersblock The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.